0: When I was a kid, like I watched my parents kind of argue about money a bit. And I'm just like, there's got to be a better way. At the time, I thought, well, if I just go to school longer, maybe, you know, get my PhD. That's how you get really wealthy. Then I went through university and realized the PhD students were driving around in the worst cars. And, <laughs> and I, I didn't actually realize, I don't think that that was actually the way to financial independence. So I uh, went to business school, but when I was at Western, I saw my friends paying rent on these these four townhouses out in front of Western. I worked some you know very brutal math and I figured this guy's making like 140 grand. And I'm like, wow, that would replace my my dad's income times like 1.75.
1: Welcome to the On Fire podcast, episode 30. With your hosts, Matt. And Kellen. In the On Fire podcast, we discuss financial independence, real estate investing, frugality, minimalism, and retiring early. Before we jump into today's episode,
2: I just want to remind you guys, in case you've forgotten, that every time you leave us a five-star rating
1: and written review, an angel gets its wings. Today's episode is with Andrew Hines. Andrew hosts his own podcasts, invests in real estate, and has a deep understanding of macroeconomics. And He has some interesting things to share about the current economic environment.
2: Yeah, this was a fun episode kind of jumping around subject matters with Andrew. One of the things that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of years is seeing his evolution with social media and see him go from essentially being a ghost, like I used to be on social media, to really leaning into it and reaping a lot of the benefits of it. But, Also super cool to touch upon some of the economic and political things we discuss in today's episode.
1: This episode is sponsored by the Findlay Mortgage Team. The Findlay team was born out of the idea that through exceptional service and expert advice, they can create a world of more accessible capital for their clients. As real estate capital advisors, their mission is to assist investors in strategically scaling their portfolios. They understand the struggle that investors face and how difficult it can be to scale once the banks say no. Their experts find alternative solutions by leveraging institutional and private capital stacks, strong networks, and competitive products, allowing them to offer an industry-leading service that is unparalleled in the Canadian real estate market. Are you too busy leading your best life, but know that you should be investing in cash-flowing rental properties? Well, now there's a way to do both with Epic Alliance's revolutionary, hassle-free landlord program. You will earn a 15% annual rate of return without ever having to deal with traditional landlord issues. Contact Epic Alliance today at epicallianceinc.com to find out how you can work together to bring you closer to crushing your financial goals. So today's guest is Andrew Hines. He's a builder and investor in student and family homes and the one and only host of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast, which if you aren't, haven't already listened to it, you need to jump over. Uh, Andrew spends most of his time on the other side of the table interviewing guests, asking them great questions, but it's time that we all learned a lot more about him. So fun fact, Andrew was actually a guest on our show a year and a half ago for episode 25, and now we are here all the way on episode 30. <laughs> so first off, props to you for putting all the work on, you know, getting your podcast set up and doing, you know, you're currently at 97 episodes, which is pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Colin. I didn't realize it was a year and a half. That's insane.
1: <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we haven't had Andrew on in a while. And then I was like, oh, that was five episodes ago. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're, we're pumped to have you on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah.
1: Awesome, Andrew. So we'd
2: love to dive more into this later. But can you give us a brief summary of what the last years look like for you?
0: Um, well, I've been working on 15 towns. So I think the last time we, we did an interview, I was working on a, a custom build. So basically, just been kind of running my own portfolio business as usual. I haven't really grown it since then just finished up projects I was working on. And uh, I've been working on a, a 15 townhouse development, which I'm just about finished. So uh, we'll be hopefully out of there before the uh, before the year is out. And then I've got three custom home builds coming up. These are all for a developer at the moment. So I'm still kind of evaluating projects. I have my eye on something right now. But the ultimate goal is to be doing projects like this for myself.
1: So back to the roots, can you walk us through your background and how you came to discover the idea of financial independence in the first place? Well, I'm not sure how much of this I shared before. But basically,
0: when I was a kid, like I watched my parents kind of argue about money a bit. And I'm just like, there's got to be a better way. At the time, I thought, well, if I just go to school longer, maybe, you know, get my PhD, that's, uh, that's how you get really wealthy. And uh, then I, you know, went through university and realized the PhD students were driving around in the worst cars. And, (laughs) and I I didn't actually realize, I don't think that that was actually the way to financial independence. So I went to business school. But when I was in, when I was at Western, I saw I saw my friends paying rent on these these four townhouses out in front of Western. I worked some, you know, very brutal math and I figured this guy's making like 140 grand and I'm like, "Wow, that would replace my my dad's income times like 1.75." So, at that time I'm like, "Wow, okay, my life mission is to own buildings like this and not need to work." And that kind of put the bug in my mind and it was a handful of years before I actually got into student rental investing. But uh, I knew I was going to go down this path. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. Uh, financial independence, I'd, I didn't even know that, that term. I had no idea what that was. I just kind of in my own head figured, well, if I could just find enough rental properties and not increase my expenses, I, I would never need to work again, which... Uh, you guys don't need to tell. You guys don't need me to tell you about
1: that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, when you when you first started out, like, what was kind of your goal with things? Where you are like, I'm going to pick up a few properties. Hopefully, they cash flow. That'll kind of bring in some like you know, quote unquote, passive income. Or was that w- like, what was kind of the thought process there? Absolutely, it was cash flow.
0: Yeah, I think I think though the, the the pitfall most investors fall into is is they have this this grandiose idea that oh that you know I'll just buy. I'll save up my current down payment, buy that rental property, and everything will be great. So I I fell into that trap. I bought the first two, and I had no money left over. And I think between the two properties, I maybe had you know seven eight hundred dollars of cash flow. And I'm like, well, this is no good. This isn't actually going to get me towards my goal. This isn't going to get me towards you know enough money that I don't need to work. And I I think that a lot of people fall into that trap, and they think that that first two properties is going to be enough. And in this day and age, it's it's. It's something that you need to be very realistic about. Like it worked out very well for you, Kellen and Matt, obviously uh, you, you did the lean fire to start, but for the average person now, they have to really be critical about their goal and figure out, is it going to be enough if I try and do that here, if I buy two properties here or three properties here, or do I need to expand what I'm looking at, get creative, go to new markets... You know, expand the geographic region I'm willing to consider. Uh, I know I, I, this is a long-winded answer to your question, but that's what I thought, and I'm just kind of illustrating that it was kind of a mistake. It wasn't nearly enough, and it took me a long time to um, to develop any significant base of cash flow because of where I was doing it and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just a slower progress uh, model. Whereas I look at what you guys have done. And maybe uh, I think I think perfection is the enemy of good. If, if I have to reflect on on the difference, yeah, <laughs> being brutally honest,
1: it, it, honestly, like it may not look like it, but I struggle with that as well. I hate like the perfectionism is 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 a, is a challenge because you end up just not like like in my case, there's there's plenty of things I've been wanting to do that I just don't do because I don't want to go in and do it, and, you know, and and not do well at it. So yeah, I don't know. Like even like the first investment properties I bought, like. When I go back and look at those renovations, I still own the properties and I go back and look at them and I'm like, man, these were done really badly. But like, whatever, right? I got in, I got it done and now I can go back and-, and you made of, money. Yeah, <laughs> made money. I can go back and clean up my issues.
0: You know, I feel the same though. I look I look at my early renovations and I'm like, wow, I would never do it again like that. You know, I see the flaws, not necessarily other people would, but I see the flaws and I'm like, wow, I would do it so much different now.
1: Yeah, and like, that's how you learn. If you don't, like even for the podcast, right? I'm sure episode one was like nowhere near the, the quality that you know episode 97 is for your own and i mean hopefully ours have improved as well but like even if they haven't we're we're, we're doing it right and the point is to try and just like improve day after day and like the only way that's going to happen is if you're trying new things and, and and failing and then just getting back up and hopefully doing it better the next time and like the first few times might be terrible and that's kind of just that's kind of just the way these things go
0: yeah well let me ask that question back to you because i know for me i failed a ton early on because i was just like no one's going to stop me from accomplishing this. Like when I ran out of money, I'm like, OK, now I'll get creative. I'll find a joint venture. I'll do whatever it takes. And I was so ready and willing to, to dive into anything that looked like it was going to get me towards my goal that I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I know you and I can both say this. We both we both have done renovations that we're not, you know, super, super proud of and we we'd like to do it better. If we were to do it again, mm-hmm. but uh, do you do you still encourage people to to just jump in, or do you? I mean, I guess I guess where's the line yeah. that you recommend? So,
1: like to be honest, it depends on the personality type. If they're the kind of person who underthinks things, then I'm going to encourage them to think more. And if it's the kind of person who overthinks things, I'm going to encourage them to take more action. And I mean, it really depends on that person. So I've had people call me saying, "Look, I, I bought three properties, and and I, and none of them are cash flowing, and I'm in deep trouble, and like like these." These ones lose money and how do I clean this like and I'm like okay that's the kind of person who's just taking action which is great but like they also need to think they, they can't just jump into things so I mean, it That's really, a great answer. I try to tailor it toward the personality type. Some people need to hear one thing and the other people need, need to hear the exact opposite.
0: It's a good answer, man.
1: <laughs> I know I'm interviewing, I'm interviewing you on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, like Matt and I differ pretty significantly in that regard. Yeah. Matt's the type to just do a bunch of shit and then he improves over time. And like, because of yeah. that, he's got a bunch of businesses. He's got the YouTube channel and like first video on YouTube, actually that was actually a pretty great video, but like in a general, it's it's not the same type of it's a different type of quality than that what you're doing now. So like, you know, what what about Matt? Like what has your kind of process been like? Yeah, I think most people are best
2: served to move fast, break things. So I'd really strongly encourage, especially it's easy to think about an adult stories where maybe someone got themselves And over their head. But the vast majority of people that watch my YouTube channel, this, you know, 70,000 plus people that have essentially subscribed, yeah, I think they need to take more action in (laughs) general. I think the School of Hard Knocks is, at the end of the day, a decent education. And if you view those first few properties or new projects into a new niche as just that, an education, breaking even or, not getting paid for your sweat equity, or even losing ten or twenty grand, most of the time with real estate investing, as long as you're doing some fundamental due diligence, the downside's relatively limited, and it's more the opportunity cost of missing out on a better deal, mm-hmm. in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. You know, in a way, there, I, I think I definitely started out like what you're saying. You know, is do do things, break things. Yeah. Now I'm a little, I'm a little more conservative now, but I still, like, I'm looking at bigger projects like I want to I want to really leverage my time and so I'm looking I've been looking at a project where I'm not to give too many details because I don't want competition on this but it would basically be you know like eight new build construction lots uh, which I could Airbnb and uh, I was running rough numbers and I mean in, in a worst case scenario as long as Airbnb is still allowed to operate I, I figure I could turn it into like thirty eight thousand dollars a month of cash flow Holy. averaged across the year best case I think I could get it up to a hundred thousand that's the kind of numbers where where you you talk about numbers like that and it could drastically change a person's life. Yeah, like, that's, that's the lovely. kind of thing that excites me. That's the kind of thing that excites me. Like I'm not really excited by small projects anymore, which I guess <laughs> the market lately uh, and you guys can give me your two cents on this. Like it's just not been exciting to me to, to you know, to go do a duplex conversion to make 400 bucks a month. Dude, like, I, I don't
1: really care for that. That's the primary example. I was going to say that the number of people doing duplex conversions right now, I think it's great. It's amazing that people are doing it because they're making something work where there wasn't otherwise a deal because there aren't a lot of deals i mean they're not able like they're hard to find right so it's great that people are making do but it's uh it's a lot of work for not as big of a reward as you'd like i mean i'd prefer to you know lean the lazy way right like like i don't know who was like bill gates or someone who says like you know hiring the lazy people ends up being a really good thing because you know they're going to find ways to make more money with less effort or have more you know make more progress with less effort and like I think duplex conversions are the exact opposite of that. Although, again, props to people who are doing them because it's an amazing it's an it ends up with an amazing result. So, well, you still win from appreciation. Like it, yeah. it's its not like it's a bad thing, yeah. but I do
0: see I do see people take deals where their equity in the deal, their forced appreciation, like what, what they've actually created for themselves is roughly like. Twenty, thirty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, that's like a realtor's commission for all that work, for all yeah. that planning. Like I'm I'm in this business. Like I know how much work it is to plan something and make it go right. There's a lot of people
2: forcing their business model. There's a lot of people compromising on their margins. And as long as the market continues to stay hot, it'll probably work out for them. But I think mm-hmm. in general, especially with experience and where the three of us are coming from, we wanna find business models we can push downhill. Not once we have yeah. to push uphill. We're the person that's going to do that duplex conversion on paper cash flow $400 a month, but in reality, maybe cash flow 50 or or $100 a month. That to me is you're starting to push that business uphill rather than looking for
0: something that really can get some velocity on its own which is what I was getting at when I started this. Like that's the way I I started. It was pushing it uphill. Like mm-hmm. all these people that would come to me, you know, pre-COVID, pre-lockdown and say, "Well, I want to invest in Toronto. No cash flow, but hey, appreciation's been great." I'm like, "What happens when appreciation stops? What happens when rents fall? You yeah. won't like life very much. You're pushing Yeah, you're pushing your business uphill in that in that case. Whereas I think, you know, Matt, I know you're you've been buying pretty aggressively in the multi-families. You know, those have just been so hot in the last little while, but I'm I'm assuming you're getting pretty strong cash flow in those numbers as well.
2: Yeah, we're still able to force it through tenant turnover and really strategically buying off market, but it's getting mm-hmm. very competitive. You know, twenty nineteen November, I think we bought seventeen units for ninety-five thousand a unit. We've renovated half those units and we just got reappraised for one fifty-eight. A unit. Beautiful. I think very soon we're gonna see one fifty the standard per unit for a two bedroom, one bath here in London. Yeah. So where rents are, we can still make money with that, but we're starting to hit a ceiling, I think.
0: Yeah, there's going to come a point where where the average person in London just can't afford to pay more, and I and, and I think that applies across Canada. At least I see that coming, and I'm curious what your thoughts on on that are uh, as well. But I mean, I look at Hamilton now. It's and and Brantford. It's sort of becoming the norm. Like you're you're paying two hundred thousand dollars a door for something that needs work, for something that needs to be renovated and bird. I mean, that's if you're buying on market, you're talking about buying off market, Mm. but the numbers you're throwing out there, I I mean, I think that in the near future, we could see London at 200k a door quite quickly.
1: And like, so it's hard to make predictions on this stuff, but like where my head goes is it's going to come to a point where people aren't really happy to buy a property if it loses them a lot of money every month. So they're not going to want to get that (laughs) far. And then even on the renting side of things, it can only get so high because of general uh, like typical income, right? So like rents can only get to the point where it's completely unaffordable for the, for the average person. And that'll kind of be that ceiling. So that's kind of where I'm picturing those ceilings coming in. Although it'll depend on, uh, it'll depend on how people are doing on the job environment and stuff like that, which as we know right now is uh, a challenge for a lot of people.
2: So I might actually jump a little ahead here because I think this segues well into a question we were planning to ask you anyways, Andrew. Yeah, go for it. So talking about affordability, rent prices, and kind of the impact that COVID-19's had on the economy and the real estate market, would love to just kind of hear your thoughts and inputs. And specifically when we're talking about affordability, it seems like the government kind of had the opportunity. For a pilot UBI, Universal Basic Income, with mm-hmm. programs like CERB. what do you think about programs like that and the potential impact on affordability for rent prices or real estate investing in general?
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, so, how much time you got?
1: <laughs> we got as long. We go as long as you want. That's the whole point of yeah. long-form content.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so let's start with with the government response. So, what I deem economic suicide, and I'll explain why. If you think about, and I don't know Matt, if you if you studied economics when you were in school, but or Kellen, I don't know if either of you did, but central banking and modern economic theory is is you know basically the idea that you, you use you use fractional reserve lending, which means so if 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 I have a bank, Andrew's bank, and you guys you know deposit hundred dollars, I can take ninety dollars out of that hundred and I can re-lend that out without telling you. And I'm basically using your money to generate more money by lending it out. And now that $90 goes out and circulates, and then you know $90 eventually gets deposited back to me because somebody buys something and they deposit the money. Now I can re-lend that money, $81. So I keep nine, lend $81 out. Over time, that $100 effectively turns into $1,000, and that's called well, basically the theory of money creation in an economy. When we use fractional reserve lending, we create money that doesn't exist. So in this case, we, we look at our government and they're, you know, targeting $450 billion deficit this year, let's say that that's what it is, say it was 500 for a nice round number, that 500 billion over the next several years, depending on the velocity of money could effectively become $5 trillion in additional currency money circulating in our economy. Now, when that happens, we still have the same amount of goods, like we, we roughly have a $1 trillion economy in terms of GDP in terms of what's selling in an average year. Well, if we've got five trillion chasing one trillion of goods, what happens to prices? Mm-hmm. And this is where affordability is is going to become a thing of the past. I look at inflation as a hidden tax. Inflation is a tax that the government imposes on you without you knowing. The average person doesn't even realize it's happening. Uh, it's a it's a tax on buying power. And uh, every Canadian should be furious right now with what's happening, with the way that money's being spent, with complete disregard for what it will do to Canada in the long run. Like we, we've just sat here talking about, well, property prices are going through the roof. Well, why are they going through the roof? You know, is that where money is going right now, all this extra money in our economy? Maybe, maybe that's part of it. I think supply and demand is a huge factor here as well. Uh, we just don't have enough real estate and we have a huge demand. We have huge immigration and it's getting more and more difficult in terms of regulation and in terms of cost to build new construction. So water always goes to the lowest point. If it becomes more expensive to buy new houses, it, you know, people are going to buy the old ones. And anyway, so overall, we, we've got an affordability issue here. And it's a disservice to Canadians. Uh, I think that there is a there is a you know, when you commit economic suicide, bad things happen. Uh, you create government dependency. And then that's where we open the door to this universal basic income. I can tell you as an employer, it's hard enough as it is when people can collect employment insurance for 48 weeks to get somebody to come in to work for, for minimum wage. That pretty mm-hmm. much doesn't exist. So you've got to pay them now $20 for a job that should cost 10 Well, how do I justify that? I have to charge more. So UBI would effectively be, as the CEO of Whole Foods put it, trickle up poverty. Um, it, it's a form of socialism. It's a form of socialism that that is an absolute lie. It's a heaven on earth kind of philosophy. People say, "Oh, we should we should try this," but in the end, I mean, communism sounds pretty awesome too. <laughs> I, I guess I guess it's pretty awesome as long as you're the person in charge. And, and I think that this is where we end up uh, if we go down the UBI rule uh, road. It is going to be trickle up poverty it's going to impoverish the worst the people that are at the bottom and it's going to slowly take out the rest and people will flee canada if that happens i'd be one of them if ubi came in i'd be out of here and, and i know I, this might be controversial but I, I i call it like i see it it boggles my mind that our leadership can allow for this in, in a day and age like this and and act like it's not an issue like hey we can just shut everything down um, the amount of debt the average business owner carries the impact that this is going to have on them you know you've got people who owned a little salon or a little barbershop, and they could break even, or they could cover their their living expenses and have a little bit extra to save. And now when they take on these new, these new loans because they weren't able to run their business, now all of a sudden with debt service, they're no longer a solvent business. And uh, it just seems so short-sighted to me. So I'm pretty concerned with the direction things are headed. And that's part of the reason I've been tentative in this past year, because uh, I believe we really need to start holding our government accountable. And I don't see it happening. I see a lot of indifference out there. So hopefully some of the people listening to this, you know, get vocal with your MPs, get vocal with, with your local leadership, because we do need to make a change here. Sorry, I know that was really. No, I love it.
1: (laughs) This was the the purpose of this was for you to partially have that medium, (laughs) because I know it's, it's not something you want to dive too deep into on your own podcast. And uh, we want to make sure you have the platform to be able to talk about what you want to talk about.
2: And so I'd love to explore a bit more here, how it's impacting your investment philosophy and strategy now. But before we do that, For people who maybe you piqued their interest with some of the subject matters, I've always subscribed to the Austrian School of Economics. So big fan of like Hayek and von Mises. I'd love to hear what resources or blogs or YouTube channels would you recommend people check out if they kind of want to learn more about what you're talking about and maybe the arguments against collectivism?
0: I would say uh, check out Mike Maloney's got a playlist on YouTube. You can search it. I think it's the Hidden Secrets of Money is the name of it. Uh, I think it's a 10-part series, but uh, the first four are the most important. Just kind of explains what money is and what it's turned into now. Like We don't really use money. We use currency, and there is a difference. So he explores the difference between that. Our currency today is not a store of value. So that's one. You could also look into the book. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island, that uh, also getting into currency. Now, for economics, that's a little tougher. I more rely on what I learned when I was in school and, and what I, I've unlearned since. But I you can certainly you can certainly look up Ray Dalio. He's got a, yeah. a video. It's about 30 minutes, 31 minutes long. I think I, I've posted that on my uh, Instagram. I think a lot of people have actually seen that before. It's about the economic cycles. I'm not sure of the name, but if you see it, it's exactly 31 minutes. So that'll give you kind of a good basis for what economic cycles are. But there's a traditional view of economics. And that really does rely on the central banking system, which I mean, I actually now am less a fan of. I used to think central banking was such a great thing, and that's another whole rabbit hole we can go down. To. But I think our modern economic theory, is there's a lot of inaccuracies in there. And I, I think that if we were to go back to sound currency, right now we operate on a fiat currency, which means it's not backed by anything. We used to have a gold-backed currency, and inflation really was allowed to happen once our dollar was no longer pegged to gold. So, anyways, uh, those are my main three resources I would recommend. You could also listen to the Peter Schiff podcast. He he's uh, an interesting guy. I, mean, I haven't listened to a ton of them, but when I have listened, I've I've agreed with a lot of the things he says.
1: Yeah, and and like for some people, if you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, he was a, uh, Peter Schiff was a guest on there as well, and kind of gave like a high level overview of his thoughts on stuff. He's pretty heavy yeah. into gold, but you know either way, he's got some pretty good pretty good thought process well, toward this stuff.
0: And well, gold is an insurance, right? So I, I mean, that's where I can agree with him. Like, it's like it's really annoying. I don't want to hold gold. I don't want to have that kind of asset because it doesn't do anything. But when your dollar is is losing its value, it's kind of an insurance policy to hold at least some. Matt, you asked, what am I doing to adjust? Mm. And so so that's one of them. The other thing is, uh, you know, we real estate investors are benefiting from being in hard real assets, assets that you can't inflate away their value. So you have to think what will hold its value? What will always be useful? And a piece of paper is trash. A piece of paper, which is money, Uh, is just just garbage i mean we're told to value it because the government says so but then the government you know it goes ahead and adds 500 billion dollars to the mix that they're effective it's the same thing as somebody handing you half a beer and dumping a glass of water in it and saying here you go like you would never want to drink that you would never <laughs> like that <laughs> yet we tolerate it with our money you know what i mean it's just what we've come to come to accept as being normal is concerning to me in that regard so i would just say keep your eyes open on cash flowing real estate that you can that you can keep for the long run if you want to combat this inflation thing i think us real estate investors could actually be blessed in a way because if inflation happens or hyperinflation happens to to a large degree, we could actually end up in a situation where our mortgage is more or less inflated Mm -hmm. away because our value goes up so much that our mortgage becomes insignificant. Yeah, I wouldn't you know, that would be chaotic to witness. It would be very chaotic. And in the interim, you know, like, how do you pay people to repair things? And, you know, if if no one values our money, we're in trouble. And again, this kind of just goes back to to the area of concern. So I'm hoping that we see some responsible government soon. I don't think we've seen it thus far. But I mean, of course, that's always obviously a controversial statement and a debate to be had.
2: And Andrew, I'd love to just explore when talking about like hard money or hard currencies, gold, silver, things of that nature. I'd love to hear how you're exactly approaching that. Like, are we talking permanent portfolio where a significant portion of your assets are being allocated into that? Are we talking just a small no. amount are Just you a holding small paper amount. or
0: are you literally no, no physical paper. assets? Physical, physical. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's paper can be manipulated. That's that's my stance on that. Like I like hard assets, things that I can touch. That's why mm. I like real estate. Uh, that's why I like gold. I've never been into stocks. I mean, I, I totally get, get the benefit there. But I mean, markets can be manipulated. We certainly see that with... With the states and what the Fed's doing, and you know they're basically buying up anything to control the value of the dollar, and all different uh, things that are traded on the market can be manipulated. So it's not to say that they're bad. It's just I accept that I know that I'm not an expert in, in market trading, so I'd, I'd rather uh, stick to what's what's tangible to me.
1: And just for uh, people listening, one of the videos that uh, Andrew is referring to is called "How the Economic Machine Works" on YouTube by Ray Dalio. I have checked it out. I think at some point Andrew had sent it along to me, and it's a fantastic overview of kind of how our economic machine works. So definitely worth checking that out. Yeah, that
0: with the hidden secrets of money, and you'd have a great, you know, running head start. And then the rabbit hole goes
1: from there. (laughs) Yeah. And so for people who are, you know, in a situation now where like, okay, like, I hear all this, what should I do, right? Like people who, you know, maybe they're just coming to school, or they maybe they own a property or two or whatever, like, what would your suggestion be under the current economic environment for people to, uh, to invest going forward?
0: Well, I look at it, you know, I, I look like treat my life the same way I treat my investments and and I have a plan A, B and C with my investments, right? You know, plan A might be to, you know, flip a property or, you know, but a plan B is I can rent it out in cash flow. And so you've always got your plan A, B and C. Well, I think that we need to start looking at our home investment market as maybe a plan A, but maybe not our plan B. And, you know, so I'm open to investing in the states, I'm open to seeking out an investment visa in a state that I think is favorable for my investing. So I, I I guess I would say, try not to try not to see the borders of our country or the borders of our province as a hard border for you. I think that it's very important that you be focused. It's very important that you be a savvy investor before you buy a property that's, you know, 500 plus kilometers away from you. But these are the type of things that I'm considering. So everything's on the table at this point, because you know, to be frank, I just don't trust what our government's doing. I mean, I, n- I know, you know, the American government's doing similar, but I, I look at America as much more isolated state by state. Each state sort of behaves differently. So if I can resonate with with the way that they're they're acting, and if I, th- I feel like that's a, a good, stable, conservative government, then, you know, that's, that's somewhere as an investor that I'm more enticed to potentially invest in.
1: And if we could circle back to, you know, one of the development projects, you know, or one of the potential, you know, projects that you may have on the go, you talked about Airbnb and stuff like that. So, what are your thoughts on on that whole world right now so like you know Airbnb we know in Toronto uh you know it has to be a principal residence that kind of threw everyone for a bit of a loop at least that's my understanding of how things are working and I know you know, London, Ontario is talking about something similar maybe in the coming years. What are your thoughts on, you know, because you talked about maybe running it as a big Airbnb or running these eight buildings that way? Is there a fallback plan? Would the properties make sense as a long-term rental? What are, what are your thoughts on all that?
0: Well, that's that's the one of the main reasons that I haven't pulled the trigger on that opportunity yet is, is because... You have to have your plan A, B, and C. That's that's my motto, right? So, um, you know, plan A, the Airbnb thing never really seemed like a great opportunity for me because I never I never felt like I had a good plan B with it, especially in Toronto. You know, in in the London market, I know that you guys, Matt, you were you were uh, involved in some of that, and I think there was an opportunity that even if, you know, if Airbnb went away, you could just break your lease if you were renting it from another landlord and renting it out on Airbnb, like the re-renting strategy. But you know if i'm looking at a property and i can't find a way to cash flow if plan a doesn't work then you know I, i'll think about it a little deeper what are the other things i could do so you know can i can i turn around and sell these for a profit well if i can build it cheap enough because i know that that's one of my skill sets then that gives me some level of comfort that okay well if this happens i'll have x amount of equity that could potentially serve as you know covering my, my operating losses while i attempt to sell all the properties. So this is, you know, probably the biggest project that I've ever seriously considered. And there's a reason I haven't moved on it yet, because I need to be confident in all my contingencies. And Airbnb, no, I am not confident in Airbnb as a long term strategy, because I mean, it hasn't been around that long, like, you know, long term rentals are are much older than I am. But Airbnb is a relatively new concept. Clearly, municipalities don't like it. For various different reasons. But if you can find areas where you know that they are more likely to like it, like in cottage country, in various different municipalities where they want to invite tourists in and it's there's less of a demand for monthly or for you know year-long rentals. I think those are the markets where you're gonna have a better shot. So, you know, I'm constantly evaluating what is the risk of, of this bad thing happening, and then what are my contingencies? If I if I perceive an extremely low risk of this, you know, unfortunate outcome happening. My contingencies, I, I might be okay to proceed if I don't think my contingencies are quite as strong as maybe they normally would be.
1: And I, um, I love how you kind of circled back to the idea of pushing, you know, pushing the business downhill instead of uphill because, you know, you could fight towards, you know, you can fight in an environment where the government doesn't want you having Airbnbs or you can go to an environment where they are inviting that. Yeah, uh, and you're that's pushing where I'd be more downhill. It.
0: Yeah. And I always recommend that, like always talk to your municipality and find out what they want, especially from a development standpoint. Like if you were trying to, you know, build a couple of townhouses or if you wanted to convert a building from commercial to residential, speak with the city and find out what it is they want. But definitely don't don't put the blinders on with that. And, and the Toronto thing always seems so reckless to me. And, and it's it's really unfortunate scene for people who own, own downtown. My, my wife's condo, we just sold it in time before, before the bottom just dropped out there.
2: Gotcha. And I'd love to explore just briefly here, Andrew, development in 2020. Have you had to change any of your projections on costs?
0: Yeah. For, for construction costs? Yeah. Yeah. They've been going up like crazy. Uh, you know, it's hard to track one thing. Like everything seems to go up, you know, aluminum window pricing, you know, 10 to 20% a year. And then wood, of course, like lumber mm. is, has been insane. We, you know, we were under three bucks and and then we got up to eight bucks or well, probably like seven bucks for a two by four. So that's been, you know, that's been something where you're, where you're saying, well, now my my framing costs from a material standpoint is more than doubled. And uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. I think that in the grand scheme of things, it's not as drastic as it might seem in terms of overall cost. But I, I have I've seen building costs I, I built for 27 townhouses in London in 2016 to 2018. And, I, and we averaged around one hundred and ten dollars a square foot hard cost to build those those buildings. And the one I'm building right now, we're, we're averaging around 165. And that that was started last year. So uh, there's already been a drastic change. Now, there's some, some changes in layout and, you know, a couple of things, but no brick on these buildings versus brick on the ones that I did for 110. So I've seen the numbers creeping up. And now I'm sort of, you know, when I'm budgeting on a new build, I'm getting closer to budgeting 200 bucks a square foot. Again, it's really tough to say one specific area that's changed. They all seem to just be going up at a far greater rate than inflation. And that's the troubling trend I see. Right. We, we've been talking about this affordability for the average Canadian. And, you know, I think it's much better for our country if, if the average Canadian can afford to own a home, can afford to you know, have a savings account. So, you know, not not to circle back to what we already talked about, but yeah, this is mm-hmm. this is the trend I'm seeing.
1: And so, OK, so that was one of the opportunities that, you know, kind of interested you right now. Have there been anything, has there been anything else that's kind of caught your eye during this time that you think might be a good place to invest in or, uh, or a good opportunity to take advantage of in our current environment?
0: Well, it's just the, the biggest thing I've seen is when people couldn't travel, all of a sudden, every cottage country or would-be cottage country seemed to get a lot more popular. And the values, although in the cities, the core cities have gone down the values in all these would-be cottage countries, even if they're not traditional cottage countries, if you are if you have access to a lake, I see a huge value there. I think that there is a demand for people that, you know, are working from home. They're like, well, we're working from home. We might as well just go up to the cottage. And there's huge money to be had. I know uh, a friend of mine just bought a place up in Tobermory, and uh, he told me he, he got it rented uh, for several nights in the month of August for, for $2,000 a day. Wow, um, like some pretty wild numbers. Now it is Lakefront, but that's that's wild. So um, that's one of the things that's uh, that's tweaked my interest. The other thing is just smaller towns. So you know, looping back to our discussion about affordability, there's going to become an uh, affordability threshold, with, which is going to be difficult to cross. So I look for where are there cities with infrastructure? They've got roads, city sewer, you know, water mains, all that stuff's already in place. Uh, Where can I buy houses at less than the cost of replacement? Because in Ontario, you know, Toronto's the center of the pond. And I apologize if you've heard me say this before, but you drop the rock in the center of the pond and the ripples flutter out. And they've fluttered their way out to London, which is why London's values exploded. And now they're making their way down to Windsor. But what about all those other rural towns where, you know, there are maybe 5,000 to 25,000 people and uh, they have infrastructure, but people don't traditionally go there. And I think anything within a two to three hour range of Toronto is a potential market where people who work from home and work in Toronto could flock to. So I see a consistent uptrend. I've been, you know, kind of digging into some of the stats across Canada. I mean, even Owen Sound Ontario has a 17% increase in, mm-hmm. in uh, property values year to year. Uh, Where there's no there's no really obvious reason for that to have gone up like that other than it's just affordable. So people go there and that's that's the best I can I can figure. So I'm interested in, in towns like that. You know anything? Anything that's you know within a reasonable drive to uh, to Toronto, like a few hours, is 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 potentially great. Even look at Sudbury; even Sudbury's going up. It's it's across the board. So if you can buy under the cost of replacement, I think that there's a huge potential upside. As long as you can get solid cash flow and you're willing to weather the storm.
2: Awesome. Yeah, absolutely agree. We're about to make some big plays on vacation recreational properties. I think we're going to see a lot of people choosing domestic tourism. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to move forward into our fire four. So we ask the same four questions of every guest.
0: The first question, Andrew, is what are you grateful for? That's a, that's a good question you know i'm I'm grateful for uh, so many things like I've got a, you know a great family here I've got you know my wife's amazing we got uh, we got our home here so we've been blessed in so many ways so I don't mean to be uh, doom and gloom. I appreciate you refocusing my attention on that <laughs> you know I, I I do call it like I see it but yeah i'm I'm so grateful for the life I've been able to have for the people I have in my life like guys such as yourselves you know the network the uh, the people around me are just uh, fantastic and I, I'm you know I wouldn't have I wouldn't have got to where I am without the people around me so I'm really appreciative of that
1: that's awesome and then on a complete opposite note what is a guilty pleasure or something in life that you can't live without
0: guilty pleasure That's a good question. Guilty pleasure. What do
1: you waste your time doing? (laughs) Social media still, still,
0: still waste some time on there. I I love it and I hate it. (laughs) I uh, probably waste a lot of time knowing the current political and economic situation and understanding kind of what's happening, really dug into what's gone on with the election in the U.S. These are all sort of useful and useless at the same time. So yeah, those would fall into that category.
1: Nice. And have you said, not to dive into anything, but have you watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix yet? I think everyone needs to watch that. I think I made it through half of
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's a good one. Very good one.
1: You only need to see about half. It kind of gets the point across. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And question number three, is there a
2: frugality tip or life hack that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: The biggest thing I can say is, you know, wherever your expenses are, keep them there. You know, that's the most simple way I could ever put that. So I've kept my expenses roughly where they are for the last... Five years, never changed them ever since we've mm-hmm. had our house together. And you know, my income, you know, certain years have been has been, you know, many many times what my expenses were. But I never changed that. And what that's allowed me to do is is when I want to focus on building my portfolio more, or want to take on a project, I could go a whole year without without doing any active work, and it wouldn't matter. You know, I could just work on my projects. So the flexibility and freedom I've got by just not allowing my expenses to rise is very freeing. So I would suggest that to anybody, you know, as you grow your income, don't buy the bigger house, don't buy the bigger, better car, like just stick with what you got. And then you'll just watch that money become useful to you.
1: Yeah, that's great. And it's said a million different ways, lifestyle inflation, hedonic adaptation. I know Mark Cuban just says live like a student, like all of that stuff is just there. Like, you know, especially early on, it's super important to kind of keep your expenses low, save up, save up and invest that money. There, there may yeah. come a time where you're like, okay, now I can start spending some money. But you know, in the first early years, it's super important.
0: Yeah. Until it, until it turns into like an avalanche of money and you know, you yeah. can't even find a place to spend it. I'd still want to keep on the, uh, let's just keep things as they are until you get to that point.
1: Yeah, exactly. And actually, uh, before we get to our last question, one thing that I wanted to touch upon earlier, do you have a financial independence goal? Do you have like a number in mind or a place where you're like, okay, I'm good? I'm And like, are you going to just leave and live in some other country at some point? Or like, what's what's kind of the thought there?
0: Well, I uh, see my goal has to work with my wife's goals, which uh, <laughs> it's not always it's not always easy to get on the same page there. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've long said that, you know, 20k a month net, After everything would be enough that, you know, we could travel anywhere we wanted, you know, pretty much do anything we wanted. So that's why, you know, the project like the one I was mentioning to you earlier was, you know, specifically intriguing to me because I want to make big moves towards that, not not small moves towards that.
1: Yeah, love it. And the last question is, what would the hero of your own movie do in your life right now? Well, you've asked me this one before. We sure <laughs> have. <laughs> Explain the context. So, a so hero, like... the, the thought process is if you are watching a movie, you're the main main character in this movie. You're sitting there watching. You're like, man, I really hope the main character does this right now. Like that's that's what they should do right oh, now. Yeah. Like, what do you think that that might be for yourself? I guess the hero would find
0: a way to, to do this project that, uh, that I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> so that you can make a YouTube video uh, a year from now saying, I make 40 grand a month cash flow with this.
0: <laughs> that would be pretty wild. But I mean, it would, it would be fun. Like I, that would actually be fun to do, you know, yeah. running, creating. I love creating. Uh, I love putting something together and, you know, saying I thought this up in my head and now this is a real thing. And, uh, you know, creating the branding, running, um, you know, an Airbnb complex as a business, I think would be really fun. And uh, I know my wife's on board with that, too. So uh, it's definitely something we're going to consider. I, I mean, I just I see so much uncertainty in the in the near future. And it's it's uh, I'm just trying I'm keeping a little nimble right now. So I may or may not proceed on that one, but uh, definitely still keeping my eyes open.
2: Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show, Andrew. Before we wrap up here, we always like to have our guests ask the audience a question. Do you have a question you'd like
0: to share? Well, that's a good one. Any specific uh, category that... Uh, it, you can face? take it in any direction.
1: Yeah, so it can be maybe something you're trying to figure out for yourself in life right now. Sometimes people ask the audience, like, what's stopping them from doing what they want to do? Or like, you know, yeah, all sorts of different directions. How much money is enough? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess a, a question I would ask is, how do you know what you know? And I know I'll it. give you the context to that. You know, we're, <laughs> we're told so many things, but think about pretty much everything in your life that you assume to be true you know, how do you know that that is true? And, uh, you know, we were told so many things, you know, growing up, we're told, get a good job, and you can retire. And you know, that that's the way to go. And, you know, we we were told the wrong thing, right? I think we investors know that. So um, I would encourage people to apply that more often in your life. How do you know what you know?
1: Yeah, I love that. So if people want to follow get in touch with you, what are some of the best ways to do that?
0: Easiest ways probably on Instagram, just at the Andrew Hines. And uh, also on Facebook, you can reach me there. Same same handle. And yeah, otherwise, yeah, the YouTube channel, the podcast, you can just search my name, Andrew Hines, and uh, you'll find me pretty much on any platform. Awesome. Thanks again, Andrew. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you. See
2: ya. That was a lot of fun getting to catch up with Andrew and really just talk about politics and economics and even, you know, maybe what's in store for us in 2021. I think that's actually an itch that I'm going to scratch myself in regards to politics and economic content. I think I'm going to start something in 2021 related to that. Yeah,
1: Andrew's the perfect guy for that. I love that episode. Andrew's definitely the kind of guest we need to get on twice. And this is definitely the second episode. I'm sure we'll have him on again in the future, especially if the investing uh, environment changes in the future. And while you guys are waiting for the next episode to come out, jump
2: over to Facebook and join the London on Fire community and follow us on Instagram at
1: Podcast. And make sure to tune in to the next On Fire podcast to meet more people, hear their stories, and learn from their mistakes. And just a quick reminder, know it'd be awesome, a five-star rating, written
2: review. I don't care on what platform, please just do it. And thanks for listening. This is Matt. And Kellen, signing off. And until next episode, remember, being normal, buying stuff doesn't make you happy. And always remember what Ray Dalio said. Everything
1: is a case study.